Peter, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Tonight's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. There are four words that people typically hate to hear any time that they're uttered. Four words. We need to talk, right? We need to talk. Now, I mean, if you are in a dating relationship with a guy or a gal and you hear the words, we need to talk, you have a pretty good idea of what is going to be coming soon after that, don't you? Or if you know maybe that you had spent just a little bit too much in your bank account, and the debit card and the overdraft fee kicked in. And you just got the push notification on your phone. Dad calls. Hey, we need to talk, right? Or maybe it's a professor that you're going through in classes and you didn't get the assignment or maybe the third assignment in a row turned in and you get that email that says, hey, we need to talk after class, right? Really, whenever we get those words, we need to talk, we can anticipate a little bit of what's coming afterwards. And we are unsure about what the outcome is going to be, 
the ball is entirely in the other person's court. As we come to the end of our series of studying the beginning of the book of Revelation, what we have in these two letters to the church at Sardis and the church at Laodicea, we have the Son of God, the resurrected and glorified Jesus, coming to these churches here in this book. But as we've seen through the series, it's not just for them. It's comprehensive and it's expansive. It's for us as well. We have Jesus coming and saying, we need to talk. Now, the thing about it is, it's not like we need to impute the, all the connotations of like a romantic relationship and that Jesus is coming to break up with the church, right? No, that's not at all what we have. The church is the bride of Christ, covenant partners together. Though we remain faithless, he remains faithful. He is calling them to come and to consider where they are right now and where they might be. And as we're going through these words that... Uh, Becca, my wife, I'm so glad you're back, uh, but she read for us so beautifully tonight. As we go through, we're tempted to think, oh yeah, this is, this is for somebody else. Oh yeah, this is, this is I, could, I, I know maybe who I could send this to. Oh yeah, I know, like I gotta you know, share some notes or do this, that, or the other for somebody else. I would encourage you, the Lord wants to speak a word directly to you tonight. The Lord has been speaking a word directly to me through the whole time that I've been preparing for this. That it's not just for someone else. It's not just for another person that might benefit from it later. But this word is a word for each of us here tonight. And we see the letter to the church at Sardis, the danger of appearances. We've gone through and this series is called Alert, right? Jesus is writing to these churches here and he's writing to us as well to be alert, We're looking at the danger of drift. Be alert to the danger of drift. Be alert to the danger of the devil. Be alert to the danger of false teaching. And tonight as we come together, we're looking here at the danger of appearance. In each of these letters, they begin very much in the same way. A descriptor of Jesus as it harkens back to Revelation chapter 1. That this is the glorified Son of God that is speaking to these churches. And listen to this description in chapter 3 verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And you're like, what does that mean? (laughs) I come in here and I don't know this code. I need this glossary to be able to go through and read. When you look back at Revelation chapter 1 verses 4, Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, you see that this is a metaphorical way, a symbolic way to be able to talk about the church as a whole. That Jesus right here, he wants the church at Sardis to know He's about to say what's coming, but the one who is saying it is the, worm that, the one that has a firm grip on the fullness of the Spirit and who is entirely aware of the scope of what's going on in the church. Jesus, he is not ignorant. He's not out of the loop. It isn't like he just comes in and peers in, oh, this is happening in the church. And he can't be hoodwinked. You know, there might have been a lot of festivities going on, a lot of activity, a lot of this, that, and the other, but he knows exactly what is going on, and this is what he says. Finishing verse 1 and on into verse 2. I know your works. And you have the reputation of being alive. But actually, you're dead. Wake up. So what, 
what Jesus is coming in right here, the one who knows what's going on, the one who's not ignorant, the one who can't be hoodwinked, he is coming right here, and the conflict that he is entering into with this church is over spiritual sleepiness. That the church right here has the reputation of being alive, but they're dead. And he tells them to wake up. He's mixing metaphors right here. We're like, well, are they dead or are they asleep? It's both. That what he is telling them to wake up, there is a disconnect between what they show to other people and who they truly are. That they have the appearance, they have the reputation, big reputation, of being just great, fully active, ready to go, brimming with joy, servant-hearted, engaging, effervescent. They're going through, and they have these appearances, they have this front. But really, who they were truly, there was this gap between their reputation and their reality. They were concerned with how things looked on the outside without taking stock of what was happening in here. And this reminds us of something similar. We saw the warning to the church at Ephesus, where we saw we need to be alert. It's possible to be full of activity and empty of love. Similarly, the church at Sardis, we need to be on alert because it is possible to have the reputation without the reality. It is possible. We have to be on alert because it is possible to have the reputation without the reality. For us going through This is the possibility of maybe the first instance, the prototypical example of cultural Christianity. And some of you are like, cultural Christianity? I mean, what do you you mean by that? Now, for a lot of folks that grew up uh, in places outside of the South, it might sound a little bit foreign, but for us who grew up in the Southern Fried South, we know a little bit more of what cultural Christianity is. You know, it's just... Maybe a time when it is culturally expedient, maybe the cool thing to do, just the assumed thing to do. It's a part of your culture to be a Christian. Russell Moore, he's the president of what's called the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. It sounds super boring, but they do great work. And he's going through, and he really represents Baptists in a lot of great ways in the public sphere, but he talks about how when he was in college, he was sharing his faith with his roommate who didn't believe Then, you know, just kind of stonewalled, stonewalled, stonewalled. And then they go away for the summer. He comes back. His roommate says, hey, I need to know of a good church to join. And Russ is like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. Like, what was it? Was it that question that I asked you, like, way back in March, like, that just kind of stuck with you? Like, or what were you just reading one night in your Bible? And then all of a sudden the light clicked on for you. Give me the skinny. I want to know what's happening. And he said, no, 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 it's nothing like that. I just want to get into politics. And in this day and age, and at this time, for me to be accepted or for me to be able to get a foot in the door with politics, I've got to have church membership somewhere. So can you just like give me the name of the biggest church? You see, it is possible to have the reputation without the reality. And I love the way this guy named Dean and Sarah, he's a pastor down in Tallahassee, right, over there with the Florida State Seminoles. He ministers to a lot of college students. He wrote a book. It's actually on the bookstall out there called The Unsaved Christian. You know, a little bit of an interesting title. But this is how Dean and Sarah, how he defines cultural Christianity. You'll be able to see it on the screen. Cultural Christianity admires Jesus, but doesn't really think that he's needed, except to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. The Jesus of cultural Christianity is a type of a historical imaginary friend with some magic powers for good luck and sentimentality. 
Amazing Grace is a song maybe known from memory, but why that grace is amazing, it can't be explained. The God of cultural Christianity is the big man upstairs, and whether or not he is holy and people have sinned against him is irrelevant. Words such as hope, faith, and believe hang uh, on the walls of living rooms as decorations, but the actual words of God only come around Psalm 23 when it's read at a loved one's funeral. Mainstream cultural Christians aren't wrapped up in promoting some kind of gospel message. They're simply trying to be nice to others, pursue their idea of personal happiness, pray when something bad happens, and rest in the belief that they are going to heaven after they die. That it is something that I see all the time living here in the South. It's something that I recognize. Why? Because I've lived it. And it's a whole lot easier to recognize it in other people when you've gone through it yourself. I don't despise my upbringing. I love my parents. They did everything that they could to raise me in a godly home and to point me to Jesus at an early age. And going through, I went to all the vacation Bible schools. I did all of the coloring sheets. I memorized all the books of the Bible in a row in a little song and got a wooden yo-yo. You know, I did all of the things, right, that the good church, little church kids are supposed to be able to do. And I didn't realize it at the time, but like what they were doing was they were planting little gospel bombs in me that the Holy Spirit later would detonate. But at the time, I was going through and I was so confident in my religious resume. I had all of the bullet points. I had the edge. I felt like I was going to be able to work my way through being puffed up with morality and full of do-goodness. And if, it hadn't been the, if the Lord hadn't saved me out of that, my trajectory was going towards one of the most haunting passages in the Bible for me. It's in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you've stumbled across this and you felt it the same way I did. This is what Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why is this alert from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the alert to the letter of Sardis necessary? Because it is possible to have the reputation without the reality. Jesus wants his church to have both. He wants his church to be outward facing, engaging, loving other people, growing, vibrant. But he doesn't want it happening apart from a growing relationship with himself. And so his charge that he gives to the church at Sardis is this. Wake up and strengthen what remains, verse 2. What is about to die? For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have heard and keep it and repent. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. These spiritually sleepy Christians, they weren't needing to learn something new. They needed to be reminded of something that they had already received. They needed to remember it and to keep it. They needed to repent. They needed to follow after Jesus. Cam, could you do me a favor? Could you grab the uh, tear sheets over here? If you hang around me long enough, you'll learn that I'm a sucker for a good tear sheet. 
And so being able to write things on them and, you know, just take them off. They're huge sticky notes, right? And you come to my office, they're up all over the walls. I look like a crazy person. But you go through, and what does it mean to actually repent, right? This is one of those good church words that we say all the time. Thank you, Cam. It's one of those good church words that we say all the time. But when it comes down to it, what, what does it actually mean? Well, to repent means to change your mind, to change your direction. You are walking one way, and you stop, and you turn, and you go in a different direction. That is repentance. That a lot of times, the way I think, and I've heard it talked about, is like this. That if you think about it, a lot of times when we see and we have this we-need-to-talk kind of moment, where you're found out, where something has been brought to light, right? That when we're going through in those moments, we either act out of tremendous apathy or we're just like action, all action. It's like, okay, well, just tell me what I need to do. And I need to do this and I'll move forward and I'll keep going. I'll keep going. Or we go and when these things kind of come up, we like, okay, yeah, well, I need to confess. I need to own up to this. Yeah, you call me to the carpet, that's accurate. Or we're tempted to conceal. I'm just going to shove that under the rug. Like, what are you talking about? And if we look at the different intersections of these things right here, that if someone is really easy, very quick to confess, but they're apathetic where they don't care, this is just a talker. Makes kind of a squeaky noise when I write. I like that. When we confess, but we don't really care, we're not going to do anything about it. It's just all talk, right? When we just are going through the motion, we're just like, oh, yeah, I'll get to that again. You know, it's kind of one of those instances in which talk is cheap. Or if we're at the point where we don't really care and we're going to conceal, this isn't a talk, this is a hider. This is someone that's just going to completely withdraw going to completely recluse. They're going to be over here and they're going to isolate away from everyone. If we have someone that is all action, but then they're just going to try to keep it to themselves, this is someone that just wants to put their head down and be a fixer. There's no real need. We can just forget about it. We can just move forward. We can go on with this. We can fix this. I can do this. But truly, when we see that somebody is able to confess, somebody is able to own up and then to move forward with action, this is a repenter. This is someone who is able to get it. This is someone that is calling sin what it is. They're not hiding. They're not retreating. They're not isolating. It's not somebody that is apathetic, that they don't give a care. They couldn't give a rip, but that they are actually prompted to action, to do something about this, to set things in place, to have conversations and people to talk to. This is the repentance that Jesus is calling the church at Sardis and that he is calling us to here today. That we are to be those that confess our sin and to believe in him again and again. And to walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Not to earn right standing with him, but to express the grace that he has already displayed in our lives. Remember what you received. And keep it. And repent. And then walk with those who are following Jesus faithfully. You know, he said right here, the church at Sardis, that there are still some, right? You still have a few names, verse 4, in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There are some still in their midst who are following Jesus faithfully. 
And he's saying, look to them as they look to Christ. Walk alongside them. Consider their ways. Fall in line. Continue to pursue me alongside them. You need to be on alert. It's possible to have the reputation without the reality. Jesus isn't interested just in appearances. He doesn't look the way man does. He looks at the heart. And then we get to the church at Laodicea. The last letter here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verse 14. This is the description of Jesus. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Well, this harkens back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and it looks ahead towards Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. With him being the Amen, he is the one who gets the last word. He is the one, so let it be, it is his will, not ours. He is the faithful and true witness. He doesn't lie. He shoots us straight. And he is the one who holds all authority. He is the beginning. So for him to be the one who gets the last word, the one who is faithful and true, who shoots us straight, and the one who holds all authority, that is the one who is speaking to the church at Laodicea, and that is the one that is speaking to us today. This is the conflict that he enters into with the church at Laodicea. The church was lukewarm. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Depending on your translation, it might actually be rendered and I will vomit you out of my mouth. It is a visceral image that Jesus is using to talk about how he is repulsed by lukewarmness. But he says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I don't need anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So what is this charge that he's bringing you to a cold nor hot, lukewarm. What is all of this about? What does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, the image that he is using, what he is trying to show them, is that they are lacking zeal. They are lacking passion. That there is no middle ground, that you are either for Jesus or you are against him. There is no in-between, hot or cold. So it's kind of like as I was thinking about this, as I was preparing this. I know, weird, I'm coming on the floor, right? As I was going through and I was thinking about this, you know, Jesus, what he's really calling them to, the church, is, you know, it's better for you to be cold, like this frozen bottle of water, or it's better for you to be, even better, to be hot, like this tea kettle from my home, right? Every night after the boys go to bed, this bad boy gets lit up. You see the blue? He says, it is better for you to be cold or hot. Not lukewarm. And he's like, what, what are you saying? Like, Jesus, it's better for me to be cold? Like, are you serious? No, what he's saying is, for those that are hot and cold, they have actually taken the claims of Christ and have considered them. They have dealt with them. They have gone through, and now they are zealous, either against the Lord or for the Lord. 
But those that are lukewarm, that are just in the middle, maybe have just enough of Jesus or just a little bit of an understanding of Jesus. They have just enough Jesus to be dangerous. But actually what they are is like this room temperature coffee that if you were to try to drink right now, it would probably produce some sort of visible reaction, right? That is what we are called. I've heard other people talk about it in ways that we have become inoculated to the gospel. Are you familiar with that? Vaccinated to the gospel. You're familiar with the vaccine, you know. I get my second dose on Friday, you know, excited, right? Hopefully some of you are able to start getting some by May, all of us, right? As we're going through how vaccines work. Now, some of you medical folks are probably going to come up and correct me afterwards, but let me have it here in this moment, okay? That as we go through, you are actually injected with a small dosage of the actual virus so that your body can then begin to build up the immunity. It's a small slice so that your body can learn how to attack it, can give you the antibodies, so that if you were to come into it with full force, your body is already programmed to be able to know how to deal with it, right? Did I get it right, medical folks? Yes? No. Okay, there we go. Some, some head nods. Thank you for the vote of confidence. And for us with the gospel, some people, especially living in the cultural South, that it is very easy for us to have just a little sliver of the gospel, just a little bit of Jesus. And so that when it comes time for us to actually be called to, and it's said, hey, we need to talk. You're like, oh, I'm good. That's not for me. It's not for me. It's for somebody else. I've got that thing taken care of. I'm good to go. I've checked that box. I've prayed that prayer. I've walked that aisle. I've had that conversation. Been through confirmation. I've been baptized. This, that, or the other. That we have gone through all of the rites of passage. And we have just enough to be able to trust in ourselves or in what we've done. And we are not hot or cold. We are not zealous for the things of the Lord or zealous for the things against him. But rather we are lukewarm and in the middle. And it is in the lukewarmness that the world around us gets very, very confused. That lukewarm Christians in the presence of others that are zealous, that are burning hot with passion for the Lord. And with those who are very clearly not following him. It's the folks in between that people are looking at and like, oh, Jesus maybe I could get on board with, but I don't know if I like your Christians. Is there really anything that's different? He says it would be better for you to be cold than to be lukewarm, but he is calling us to be hot. There is no middle ground. There is no playing church. There is no playing the Christian life. That as you come and as you are confronted with the claims of Christ and his call to repent, to believe, to lay aside your own pursuits in your own way, building your kingdom and now to follow him, that you will either be for him or against him. There is no middle ground. And that as we continue to pursue after him, as we continue to follow after him, as we call others to follow him, we now, those who are zealous for the Lord, we realize that we need to be on alert that Jesus is not interested in being our consultant or influencer. When Jesus is a consultant, you can take his advice or leave it. 
when Jesus is an influencer, when he says something that you don't like or something that you're not on board with, you just find another account to follow. Jesus is not interested in being your consultant or your influencer. Jesus wants to be your king. Jesus wants to be your Lord, your source. How do I know this? Because the charge that he gives to them. He's saying, don't rely on yourselves. Rely on me. Laodicea, it was one of the only places in the Roman Empire that when there was a huge earthquake, they didn't need government subsidy. They were a banking hub. They had their own money. They, they were covered. Then they were a fashion hub. The breeders there for the livestock with the sheep, they were able to produce dark wool that was not able to be found pretty much anywhere else. And then they were a medical center. They were said to have developed this thing that could be a salve for the eyes as they were getting older. And so if you were to take like the medical center like of Birmingham, the fashion hub of Paris, and the banking center like Wall Street, roll them all up into one, and then you had Laodicea right here. And they were able to trust in themselves, and them trusting in themselves, they said, we're rich, I'm good, I got this covered. But he says, no, actually, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You, in trusting and relying on yourself, that makes me want to vomit. I would rather you be cold or hot. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in me. This is the counsel that he gives them in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. With, and buy garment, white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Stop looking to all of these other earthly means to define yourself, to give you worth, and to give you standing. Look to me as your source. I'm not interested in being your consultant or your influencer. I am your Lord. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on me. And this is what he says. Remember that I love you. He's speaking this harsh word to them, and he's speaking this harsh word to us. Why? Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And remember when he's saying be zealous, he's saying you've got to be on one side or the other. You've got to be zealous for me or you've got to be zealous against me. And I want you to be zealous for me. I want you to repent. I want you to be able to confess and to act. I want you not to hide away in shame. I don't want you to not care. Be zealous and repent, to be zealous, to be a person of one thing. We know how exhausting it can be sometimes to be double-minded, to be talking out of both sides of our mouth. And what Jesus is calling us to is to be zealous, to be a person, to be a people of one thing. And that's him. And this means in the way that we spend our money, we put him first. In the way that we spend our time, we put him first. In the ways that we use our sexuality, we put him first. In pursuing your education, you put him first. I love the way Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor in New York, how he said, how can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly for you without giving yourself utterly to him? 
that when we realize the magnitude of what God has done for us and given to us, then how could we respond in any other way than in zealous, single-minded, single-hearted devotion to Him? I love the way that C.S. Lewis, the 20th century British apologist, said, he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing that it can't be is moderately important. You have to consider if the claims of Christ and who he says that he is, if it's not true, go about living the life the way that you want. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That we all we have is this life. If Christianity is false. But if it's true, and I believe with everything that I have that it is, then it is of infinite importance, single-hearted, single-minded devotion, being all about that one thing. The only thing that it can't be is moderately important. Being lukewarm, where Jesus is just an accessory to your life. Maybe that you change out with the seasons or that you bring out when you get around certain members of your family. That what we are called to do is to open the door. We see this in verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus desires to give you what is best for you. And what is best for you is himself. Jesus, he is not content to let us lie in sin and death. He came to us showing us what life with God and before God looks like. He came to us taking our place under judgment, bearing the punishment of God for sin. He came to us rising from the dead, forever securing our life with him for all who would repent and believe. And he came and will be with us forever. And when, we're with, when we are with him forever, what will we receive? What we look at the end of the letters to Sardis and Laodicea, we receive the white garments, pure and enduring. Our names will never be blotted out of the book of life. There's security. That we'll have Jesus as an advocate before the Father. That we will have true gold, white garments, south our eyes, being able to see, table fellowship with the Lord. And it still blows my mind and I can't wrap it around it. A seat with him on the throne. That this is infinitely better than anything that we could seek to get out of this world. And at this time, in our own way. You might be feeling uneasy. You might be feeling uncomfortable. You might be feeling what we would call convicted, right? Like I have as I've gone through in reading and preparing for this. And I just say this, this isn't something to run from, but it's something to push deeper into. Because truly, Jesus is loving you in that feeling. Jesus is saying, we need to talk. 
But it's not with the threat of the relationship being taken away. He's not breaking it off with us. But truly, he is drawing us closer to himself. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. Be zealous and repent. Be following hard after him. Burning hot for his name. Like, why would we be content to just have the reputation of being one that follows Jesus? Or why would we be content to have him as an add-on, as an accessory to our lives? He's not interested in either of those things. He's interested in full-hearted, all-life commitment to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess here at the end that this is a hard word and that God we so often are consumed with other people's perceptions of us we are consumed with reputation and we often just want the appearance of things rather than the actual thing that maybe we're full of activity and things on the outside but inwardly we feel dead and lifeless. Or we've been going through and we've been pursuing things in our own way. Saying that, oh yeah, I'll get around to Jesus when I get older, when I want to settle down, when things take a turn, or when things get really messed up. God, would you bring us back from both of those places? Would you help us to follow with a single heart, with a single mind? To be all about one thing and that being you. Help us, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.